Philippians chapter 2. This is our eighth sermon in the book of Philippians so far, and we are just now at chapter 2. Woo! Yay! Moving right along. Uh, we will probably move out of fast. Hey, nice to see you this morning. This is one of those days, isn't it? Where it's just like everybody is scattered. It's like, what did you say, John? Yeah, squirrel, exactly. Yeah, it's the rain, it's the cold, it's the getting up early, it's the still in the throes of dealing with, what's that thing called? Daylight savings time? And moving into a holiday week. All right. Today's passage is about peace and unity and harmony. Words that definitely characterize the world we live in. Nobody's even smiling. Words that characterize the world we live in on every possible level. Politically, philosophically, theologically, economically, ironically, otherlies, and just in time for the holidays. Yay! Where we all experience the most peace and unity all the time. All right. Thanks, David. I knew I could count on you this morning. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what does the church have to say about peace and unity? What do we expect the church to have to say about peace and unity? What does the Bible have to offer? A bunch of vague platitudes, a bunch of general appeals for peace on earth. Is it the church's job to remind us all of some warm, fuzzy ideal that vaguely represents the holiday spirit? Is it our job to look out on the political and social discord and call for peace and unity? Let's all gather together and sing Kumbaya. Is that the need of the hour? I submit to you that the correct answer to all of my questions is no. No. It's really easy to come to a passage like today's passage and focus on the beauty of some ideal of unity, or as we'll see when we read it, the beauty of what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is going to do. We should do those things too. It's easy to miss the point though. The point of this big passage today is unity and peace. The Apostle Paul is calling the church to unity and peace. That's the point. It's a theme he's going to repeat over and over throughout this book, but it's the point of the passage. And it's a continuation of uh, not last week's sermon, because Dwayne was up here, but two weeks ago when Ben preached. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, the call to stand firm in one spirit, to with one mind strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so we're going to read the passage, and we're going to dig in. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together this morning to worship you as your people. This morning, we pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would help us to see our sin and our pride and our selfishness and all the things that stand between us and peace. Peace with you, peace in our homes, peace in this church, peace in our community. Help those of us in this room repent of the things we need to repent of and to grow and change in the ways we need to grow and change this morning. We lift up to you the church as a whole in greater Evansville, that across this community, your word would be faithfully preached, that sinners would be saved, that your saints, your people would be strengthened and encouraged, and that all of us as we gather would embrace the things that make for true peace. Pray for the churches in our presbytery, that you would bless them and make them faithful to you. Pray that you would help us to do our part to strengthen and encourage them and to hold them accountable to your word and pray that you would continue to use them to strengthen us and to help us to be faithful to you. As we come to your word now, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us the eyes of faith, that you would give us willing hearts, obedient hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so is unity a problem with the church at Corinth? And we've talked about this before, right? Like we've talked about, did I say Corinth? The answer is yes. Yes, unity is a problem with the church at Corinth. It's a big problem. How about Philippi? Man, at Philippi, relatively speaking, is it a big problem? It's not, not really, right? I mean, that's what we talked about. Let's like, we spent eight sermons on chapter one, right? And a lot of that was the fellowship, the unity, the community that these people have in their relationship with the Apostle Paul and how sweet it was. And yet, we talked about unity in chapter one. We have an exhortation to it here. We're gonna have more later in chapter two and in chapter three. And then in chapter four, we're gonna see that there, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to stand up and call out two people by name. This letter is going to be read to the whole church, and two people are going to get called out by name and exhorted to agree with one another in the Lord. So on the one hand, relatively speaking, it's not a big deal. On the other hand, it's a constant threat, right? And part of that, what's the first word of today's passage? So. So as in... Therefore, right? And one of the most important questions you can ask when you see the word so or therefore is, what's the therefore? Therefore. Why is that word there, right? And so uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Ben's sermon, he was talking about this idea that we have to stand firm in one spirit because we have enemies outside, right? That are attacking the gospel 
that are attacking the church, that are attacking God's people. So stand firm together, side by side, right? So, whatever the case, remember, don't let the enemy conquer and divide from within, right? It's a huge threat to the people of God. So yeah, there's not division on the level of Corinth. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, Peter. Well, I'm spiritual and I follow Jesus. Right? That's the church at Corinth. Everybody's dividing up into camps and factions. There's not that level of division here, but still the potential that they would be divided that they wouldn't hold fast to one another was a threat. Okay. So, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, are there those things in the church at Philippi? Again, we've talked about it, haven't we? Like all kinds of it. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Is there any comfort from love? Yes. If ever there's a book in the Bible where those things are clear, this might be the one, right? He's making sure they remember. He's, whole, he's making them understand how important call to be of one mind really is. If there's any, all this stuff, all this love and affection that's overflowed so far, if any of that is true, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Now, in verse 3, Paul identifies the enemies of unity. He commands that nothing be done from rivalry or conceit. Those are the enemies of unity. Some people will tell you that the enemies of unity are conviction, commitment to the truth. The enemies, the true enemies of unity are rivalry and conceit. In the King James, their strife and vainglory. In the New American Standard, their selfishness and empty conceit. Selfish doesn't, selfishness doesn't really cut it. Rivalry is better. It means having a partisan or a fractious spirit, a desire to put yourself forward. We know from chapter one, right, you truly can preach Christ out of rivalry, right? We had a whole sermon about that, that whole section there. We can, in some respects, truly preach Christ from wicked motives like this, rivalry and conceit. We can preach him rightly in the sense that we're preaching the truth of the gospel, at least, right? People do it all the time. It's a frightening thing. We're all capable of it. I'm capable of it. It's kind of rivalry and strife. We talked about, uh, to some degree in the Sunday school class this morning, right? Or whatever non-Sunday school words we're using for Sunday school. I forget. All right. So the enemies of unity and peace among us, what is it to do something from rivalry? What's at the heart of strife? James answers a similar question for us in uh, James chapter four, when he says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
The heart of strife, the heart of rivalry, really is just wanting what you don't have. Selfishness isn't the full meaning of it, but selfishness is a big part of it, right? It's the insatiable desire to be number one, to be at the top, to be in control. It's a lust for power. It's a lust for control. It's the idea that I deserve things. I'm entitled to things. Namely, whatever I want, it should be mine. I don't answer to anybody but me, certainly not to God. I do what I want. If everyone is a God, if everyone is their own God who does what's right in their own eyes, well, that's just the anarchy and chaos that Adam and Eve started in the garden. It's what they brought into the world when they took the fruit and rejected God's rule. That's the chaos and selfishness and sinfulness that entered into their marriage and went down into their children between Cain and Abel. Sin and selfishness, all about me, all about what I want. There are two principles in this passage as well that the Apostle Paul teaches will lead to peace and unity. Be like-minded, he says, or be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. It's verse 2 of chapter 2, right? We're called to be unified in spirit, to have a common allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his gospel. Remember the last, maybe not the last time, at one point I was studying this passage back in the day, and Amanda and I were watching Band of Brothers. Y'all seen that? Yeah, no? Really hammered things home. It's just what happens in war, right? Men come together in times of struggle and trial around a common allegiance, a common purpose, a common goal, and a common enemy. It's what happens in war. It's what happens on sports teams. It can happen in families when you're enduring hardship. Tiny pictures of what should happen when God's people are united in allegiance to Jesus. It's also a point of division because we can't have unity with those who don't conform themselves to Christ who aren't committed to Jesus. We can't have competing allegiances. If there's to be unity in the church among the people of God, it's going to be around the truth of God's word, right? The world thinks that it can change everyone and have peace if we just speak the words peace and unity loudly enough, if we march in the streets and chant it, if we educate everybody properly enough, we'll have peace and unity. The Bible says, no, no. Everyone's ruled by their desires and their passions. It's not about education. It's about conversion. It's about heart change, real change from the inside out. In a church, it can look as simple as, or the bad version of the the problem can look as simple as uh, diatrophies who loves to be first. This is some dude that Paul calls out by name in a letter. Forever we know that Diotrephes is some dude that loves to be first. (laughs) 2,000 years later, Diotrephes. We know one thing about him. He loved to be first. It can look like the divisions at Corinth. It can look like conceit, vain glory, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought thinking too much of ourselves, thinking of ourselves too much, being absorbed in ourselves, in our own interests, getting what we deserve, getting our rights. can look like clamoring to be noticed. It can be, look like politicking for positions of leadership. It can look like self-pity. 
No one understands me. No one notices me. No one sees my gifts. If they could only see and understand how awesome I am, they're probably threatened by how great I am. These types of things cause division. How do we fix it? Again, the first principle is that idea of common allegiance to Jesus the King. The second is humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Considering others better than yourself, more significant than yourself, not looking only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That kind of humility is a self-forgetful kind of humility. Considering others better, more significant means putting their needs, looking to other people's needs before your own. Doesn't mean you neglect your own, but considering others better than yourselves means, hey, I'm looking out more than I'm looking in. I'm looking out for who to love and who to care for. It's the opposite of demanding your rights and what you deserve. Healthy families operate this way. Care for each other. Healthy churches operate this way. We consider the needs of those at the margins. Healthy churches model and instruct families in the way of love and humility. And together, healthy families and healthy churches built on the gospel build healthy communities. It's the kind of thing that D. Wayne was talking about last week. I was saying in Sunday school or wherever I was saying, he's one of the best walkers of that walk that I know. This makes it his business to love everybody, especially the people that are pushed out to the edges. Okay, we're talking about the problem of fixing division, striving for unity. And so far we've got be loyal to Jesus and be humble. Is that easy? How do we do that? How do we really do it? The first answer is in the first verse of the chapter. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, granted, he's assuming all those things already exist, but they have to be there. They have to be real. There has to be real encouragement in Christ, real comfort from love, real participation in the Spirit. There's no hope for overcoming your own rivalry and your conceit, your selfishness. Unless those things are true, you have to belong to Jesus and have to be truly born again. You have to have his spirit in you at work. But even then as Christians, we're so full of pride and conceit and envy. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to be humbled. We don't even see our sin. We find ways to justify our sin all the time, don't we? So then what? What do we do? What gets into our hearts and lays us low enough that we can put others before ourselves. Jesus shows us the way. He commands it, he always has, but he does it himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the eternal son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, humbled himself and stooped down and entered into the womb of Mary and lived there for nine months and was born and laid in a feeding trough in a stable, which was probably much more like a cave, actually. God himself, Man's first relationship, the one he rejected, God himself came and he stooped down to restore that. Jesus humbled himself, not just by becoming a man, it's amazing enough. 
But he came and he got really, really low. His mother was a scared teenage girl. He lived his whole life in some hick town that nobody cared about. He lived as the son of a carpenter working with his hands. The first time he preached a sermon, they tried to kill him. Nobody liked him, nobody that mattered or was important. So who did he hang out with? Who did he spend his time with? Just the sinners, just the low, the poor, the oppressed, the needy, the sick, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the beggars, notorious sinners, people everybody else hated, tax collectors, prostitutes. Those were his people. This is God. Anyone who knew they needed help, anyone who knew they needed a savior, anyone who knew they were a sinner, that's who he came to. He spent three years ministering to those people, the people he came to save, and he wasn't done humbling himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what happened? God, who created man, who created man's mouth to sing his praises, was mocked and slandered by the mouths he created to sing his praise. God who made our hands to do good works and to do good deeds was beaten by those hands, humble to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Taken by those hands and raised up and put on a tree. Was there a reason it was a tree? There's a reason it was a tree. Adam ate of the tree. The tree that Adam ate of brought death and sin into the world. Jesus was hung on a tree. He ate the fruit of the fall. He suffered and died in our place as God, making himself as low as possible. As low as possible. So that we could have peace with God. While we were still enemies fighting against God. Jesus made himself lower than all of us. And we fight about the things that we think that we did. What did he deserve? What does he deserve? All honor and glory and praise, that's what. What do we deserve? Judgment? He made himself lower than all of us so that we could have peace with God and peace with one another through the blood of his cross and through imitation of his example. That's our king. So there at the foot of his cross is where we have to lay our pride, our conceit, our rivalry, our selfishness, all the things that say me and mine, they belong right there at the foot of the cross. How can you hold on to that and look at the king? Jesus died to reunite us with the father and with each other so there could be peace between heaven and earth and there will be so there could be real unity, and there will be. It's bought and it's paid for. We get to taste some of it here and now. Here in the church, we should be able to taste some of that. And we work toward it, not just here, but everywhere. And we set our hope on it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
the world will go back into submission to the king. It will. It's in the process of it now. No matter how the nations rage, Jesus is at work reconciling men to himself and to each other. And one day that will be complete. Order will be restored. The wicked will be punished. The righteous by grace through faith will inherit the world and have real peace and unity. Where to show the world what it's supposed to be like here. What can happen if we agree to live with one another in love? But it starts by looking at the king. What did he do? He got low. He got lower than everyone. He got low enough to look any of us in the eyes, no matter how wicked our past, no matter the ways that we have sinned, no matter the things that have been done to us, he got that low and lower still. He bore it all on himself. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours. Be like him. How can you receive that kind of love and grace and not be humbled by it? Not set your pride aside. Not do to others as he has done to you. We're sinners, that's why. That's how. We need his grace. We need his help. Let's pray.